Hi, I'm Michael G. Williams, and welcome to Social Distancing Radio. I'm a novelist, and a reader and friend of mine asked if I would record myself reading one of my novels as something they would find comforting and familiar in the midst of the uncertainty and anxiety of the COVID-19 pandemic. I'll be reading to you from Perishables, the first book in my five-book urban fantasy and vampire series, The Withrow Chronicles, published by Falstaff Books, aka FalstaffBooks.com. If you'd like to pick up a copy for yourself, head over to bit.ly, that's B-I-T dot L-Y, slash Perishables link. That goes to Amazon. Thanks. Okay, welcome back to Social Distancing Radio. I am Michael Williams. I now have my like super fancy recording setup ready to go. So let's see how this comes out sounding. First, of course, there is the reading wine. Mm. Oh, that's such good wine. I love that wine. Yes, that is what it is all about. So let's talk a little about perishables. Um, there are so many things that I wish I could change in this book. And that is just the nature of the beast when it comes to getting something published. It's too late. Uh, things that I wish I could change. I wish that I had made the cast more explicitly ethnically diverse about three books into the series, I realized that I wished that I had made Jennifer African-American and I'm not actually sure that I ever specified her ethnicity or her race. And so, um, it might be possible within the bounds of the words that are on the page for me to claim that she was black the entire time, but that would be fundamentally dishonest. And so I'm not going to do that, but I really wish that I had made the cast more diverse. Uh, there are Asian American characters in the series. There is, uh, there are a couple of African American women in the series. One of whom is a really major character in the third book. One of whom is a really minor character. Uh, she's Levand, the wife of Diane, who is the, um, detective with the sheriff's department in books two and five. Um, I was thinking about that earlier today and I just don't know what my blind spot there was, but clearly I had a blind spot. So if I could go back and change change anything, it would be to radically diversify the skin colors of the cast. I also think that I would have talked a lot more about Withrow's queerness earlier. I was a little surprised reading it at how early it came up because in my head, it never comes up until the very end of Perishables when he's talking to Jennifer about his life and why he became a vampire. To some degree, that is a penalty of Withrow being an established character at the beginning of the book. I had played Withrow as a character in a long-running Vampire the Masquerade campaign. Vampire, Vampire the Masquerade Chronicle, excuse me, um, in the 90s, and had played him off and on ever since, and had written some fiction with Withrow that like, we'll probably never see the light of day, because it was very 
contained to within the context of that game. It involves like characters made by people other than me and stuff like that. So I really wish that, uh, I had made his queerness more explicit early on. Um, I actually have once had a reader tell me that they like Withrow because they think of him as an asexual character. And again, it would be revisionist of me to claim that that was always the intention. But looking back, I can absolutely see where someone would see that in the text. And I think that's fantastic. If that's meaningful to somebody, then by all means, like claim him, have a ball with that. That is no problem for me. It strikes me as fitting because in the third book, when uh, the demon sort of forces Withrow to want him. Um, it's a, something that Withrow considers very violating. And uh, that's something that I had never thought about, that maybe he would feel that way about anyone who sort of like had that sort of sexual tinge to their way of relating to him. I mean, by the same token, there are points in the stories where he talks with Roderick about like going out to clubs and going dancing and quote unquote making out with some hot guy and drinking their blood and then like leaving them to sleep it off. Um, but I wish that I had talked more about with his queerness. And I think I had been, I, I think I, sorry, I'm tongue tied. I wish I had been more creative with his queerness instead of him just being an older gay guy who like had a really shitty time of being alive because of when he was a gay guy. Um, <clears throat> other things I wish I could change. I really wish I had not killed off killer the dog in the very beginning. It, when I wrote the book, my intention was that that would be the moment that the story stopped being funny. And instead I have since then had people occasionally say that they found that amusing and my response has universally been, no, that is supposed to be tragic and horrifying. That's not supposed to be funny. It's never funny for a creature, whether they're a person or not a person, to is our responsibility to suffer. Uh, it's not funny. Suffering is never hilarious. That's I don't get the mindset of people who think that suffering is funny. Um, that's sort of at the root of what uh, I've often heard called cringe comedy and I have absolutely zero patience for cringe comedy. Um, it, at least in situations where the point is the suffering of the character who is the butt of the joke, uh, who is otherwise innocent or undeserving. I'm all for like storylines where people who've got it coming get their comeuppance. Uh, and I'm all for, sort of characters that reveal how ridiculous they are by their actions and their words. Um, as long as it's never about like making somebody with whom we are supposed to sympathize also like experience anguish for our entertainment. Uh, and that's sort of how I'm able to enjoy things like uh, strangers of candy where everybody is a cartoon. Everybody is awful. Um, but like, the awfulness that they possess is sort of very much on display as undesirable. And um, nobody like directly suffers in a way that makes me like 
cringe because I love them and wish that things would be okay. The, a conversation my husband and I have had recently several times about like, or sort of an ongoing conversation that we've had about stuff that we like, you know, stuff that we're fans of and stuff that we're distinctly not fans of includes the fact that like a, a lot of times stories don't work to build actual sympathy or empathy for with the characters Instead, they take this very lazy route of putting the characters in a very awkward, cringy situation so that we hope that that situation will end. That's not the same as making us sympathize with them, though, or empathize with them. And uh, it's very lazy storytelling. And an example of a show that does a really good job of building actual sympathy for characters is Schitt's Creek, which we're in the middle of watching. And just over and over again, these characters are completely out of touch and they're very ridiculous and they're huge caricatures. And at the same time, they're completely without guile. They don't mean badly. They aren't mean characters. They're out of touch and they're having to learn how to live in the world like normal people again. But uh, they do so with tremendous fondness for each other and affection for the things that they really do love. And um, it's never about, look at these stupid people, now let's make them suffer. I, it, instead, it's about, look at these people who have lived a very insulated life and have had the insulation ripped away, and now they are responding to each other in ways that are understandable, but also come from a place of compassion as often as not. In fact, I think always they come from a place of compassion. You know, in the locals think that they're ridiculous, but the locals also work really hard to welcome them into the town and to make them feel at home and to like build bridges with them. And that's a really important part of storytelling for me. And I feel like every time somebody reads the bit where killer is dead and doesn't get that that's tragic, then it's because I have failed as a writer at that point in the story. So I really wish I could undo that. I wish I could remove that opportunity for somebody to misinterpret what I meant. Um, because ultimately it's my responsibility what's on the page. And, uh, and so that's, I'm the person who should be held responsible for that. Not people who get it, who read it and, and read it in a way that I did not intend. Um, other stuff that I wish I could change. I kind of wish people didn't think it was comedy. Um, <laughs> that's a, weird thing to say because a lot of the success that it's had comes from a review where a really amazing book reviewer, book blogger, uh, book nerds, brain candy referred to it as Stephen Colbert meets Stephen King. And early on, right after I self published it in 2012, 2013, I was telling people that it was comedy and horror. Um, but then the rest of the series doesn't have really any laugh lines at all. And I don't really think of it as funny, haha comedy. I think of it as horror that remembers that it's ridiculous and that horror in general often pokes fun at the parts of our society that are the most like restrictive unnecessarily or the most arbitrary or the most unfair. And so you get, a lot of horror stories, whether they're on the page or on the screen about like people who have very comfortable, insulated, privileged lives who are broken out of that and react badly. Uh, 
or about people who like have never experienced tragedy who are suddenly confronted with tragedy and, uh, and are at the same time menaced by that same tragic agent. And that's what we're supposed to connect to emotionally a lot of times. Um, but that also like horror, I've talked about this a million times on panels and conventions, horror and comedy have a lot in common and uh, they both rely on subverted expectation. And, you know, ultimately you can write the same scene right up until the moment where somebody pulls the trigger. And the difference between the horror version of that scene and the comedy version of that scene will be whether what comes out of the gun is a silver bullet to kill the werewolf or a flag that says bang, you know, and really that moment, like what happens after the moment of crisis is often what defines the boundary between horror and comedy, uh, even though we don't necessarily often think of them as being right next door to each other. I think that Buffy the Vampire Slayer opened a lot of people's eyes up to that uh, and did an amazing job. Anyway, so I wish that people didn't think it was funny, haha, because it gets compared to other comedy horror series that are like comedy. And, and I think that people get very disappointed. And uh, one of the worst reviews it's gotten was from somebody who bought it because they were told, oh, it's comedy and it's just like that other series that is like actual comedy. And then they read it and were very disappointed. And I don't blame them for being disappointed because it's like ordering the chicken and getting the beef. And I didn't want the beef. I wanted the chicken. They didn't want horror that like occasionally is a little wry. Um, they wanted comedy. And I don't hold that against them. I like comedy too. So uh, other things that I wish I could change about it. I don't know. I wish that I made more of the women in it more likable reading it this time. I was like, gosh, oh, so many of the characters who are unlikable are women. And, uh, at the time that this book was written, I was not in a great place emotionally in my life and, or in like relationships, things like that. I'm gay, but, uh, I was still like, I, I feel like, um, being in a bad place emotionally in other parts of my life made me a little meaner than I think I would have been if I had written this book later in life. And I think that, you know, the stuff I've written in the last four, few years uh, has been much more along the lines of just some of it has been really hopeful and some of it has been like a little cynical, but also with an awareness that compassion has a tremendous amount of power. I don't think Withrow is a very compassionate character in this book. I think by the end of the series, he has developed a lot more compassion. And I think partly that's because he's got a character arc. And I think that that's partly because he's an anti-hero. And usually the difference between a hero and an anti-hero is that a hero starts out like at their birthday party and their uncle is there and they just got a new ring and all their friends are around and there's that cool wizard and they set off to do a quest and then they have everything in their support network sort of stripped away from them one thing at a time until at the end, it's just like them and their best friend and their worst enemy and they're at the mouth of the volcano. Um, whereas anti-heroes tend to start out with nothing and they start out sort of reviled and very much at the bottom of the ladder socially. And over the course of the story, anti-heroes tend to acquire that social support network and, and learn the value of, of the vulnerability required of them to build those connections. And then that's what em enables them to win. You know, that's how they overcome difficulty. 
And so partly that's just like built into this story that he would start out without really having a social support network or any sort of like emotional support. And he would develop that over time. But I also think it's because by the time the series was finishing, I was a much happier person, you know, and that's just the way it is. So I've yammered for 15 minutes, and I think that is plenty of hearing me yammer. So let's talk about what I'm going to be reading next. So uh, next up, I'm going to read three short stories in a row. I have no idea how long that will take me. The There are three short stories from three anthologies that I was in, all published by Sekhmet Press. They are wrapped in red, wrapped in white, and wrapped in black. Each anthology was themed around a different kind of creature or person. So wrapped in red is all vampire stories, wrapped in white is all ghost stories, and wrapped in black are all stories about witches. Those three stories form a little trilogy of stories, and they happen in the Withrow Chronicles universe, and in fact feature characters that become really important in those books and are probably going to be the stars of the next thing I write in the Withrow Chronicles world. Um, I'm not really sure when that's going to happen because I actually have a ton on my plate writing wise at the moment to the point that I'll probably be writing in late 2023, but, uh, but that's the plan. So anyway, next time I will start in with Daddy Used to Drink Too Much, which is the first in this little trilogy of short stories and appeared first in Sekhmet Press's Wrapped in Red. Uh, thanks for listening. I'm going to make a Facebook page for this podcast and everything, and I'm about to post in a couple of writer groups I know and start lining people up to do public domain radio because I know a couple of writers who are very interested in that. And I will now let you have your time back. Thank you. Thanks for listening. This podcast is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives license. The theme music is Plucked Contemporary Boom by Kara Square, available under a Creative Commons Attribution license at ccmixter.org. Thank you.